Father, thank you for the opportunity for us to be here, uh, particularly uh, considering the rough weather that we have again tonight. And I pray that anyone else who is still traveling here, that we would keep them safe as they travel. And we pray that our time together would be profitable as we reflect on your word and think about how it applies to us and how we um, ought to obey it and apply it to our lives as a church. We pray for help in this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 tonight, and I'm going to add a couple extra verses for free. Uh, just because you braved the, wet, the weather, we were going to go through 14, but I added some more for you. So, But we'll take them off of next time. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, anyone remember how... Anyone want to try to summarize chapter 8 for us? What was going on there? Right. So specifically, what was the issue at stake? No pun intended. Uh, it was eating the meat that was sacrificed to idols. So um, the Corinthians think that because Christ bought them with his blood, they have freedom. And in a sense, they are right. But they took it a step further and thought that their blood-bought freedom could actually allow them to do whatever they wanted, even eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. And Paul's answer is not quite that simple. It's true that there's nothing inherently sinful about eating the meat. There's nothing demonic about eating meat that's sacrificed to idols. It's not sin for you um, because you all know that idols are nothing. But... If you cause your brother to stumble in your eating, then it becomes sin, right? And so then you sin against your brother and you sin against Christ. So we finished last time with three resolutions. Um, first, I will resolve to do nothing that will cause my brother to sin. So obviously we don't have the same issue going on today with whether or not someone in our church is going to eat meat sacrificed to the idol. But I will do nothing to cause my brother to sin. Second, I will do nothing that will... hint. <coughs> Excuse me. That will hinder my brother's growth. I will do nothing that will hinder my brother's growth. And then third, I will give up my personal freedoms in order to make one and two happen. In order to make sure that my brother is not falling in, or I'm not causing him to sin, and I'm not hindering his growth, I will give up my personal freedoms. So Paul essentially says in chapter 8, don't use your personal freedoms for your own good. They're not for you to just uh, to, to use carelessly. Now in chapter 9, Paul seems to be taking a vacation from that argument of personal liberty. And he seems to move on to a different issue only to pick up the issue back again in chapter 10. So it seems like he's talking about how we use our personal liberty, our personal freedoms, really how we misuse it, chapter 8. Then he takes this section to talk about the fact that pastors ought to be paid, and then, and then this, then he gets back to it in chapter ten. So what's going on here? Paul is actually in chapter nine using himself as an example of having a legitimate personal freedom, setting it aside, giving it up in order to build up Christians, because the Christians, the, uh, the Corinthians, there, they ha- they did not have a very high regard for Paul in the first place. And so, as he's telling them, you know, you need to give up your personal freedoms, they may be hearing it cynically, thinking, you know, who's Paul to say this? Easy for you to bark down orders from your ivory tower, Paul. Which, you know, he's in prison at this time, it's not really an ivory tower. But, but yeah, you can bark out your orders from far away, make us give up meat while you're uh, in prison enjoying yours or whatever. And and, uh, Paul wants to say, no, listen, I have a legitimate right to something myself. And I am willing to give that up for the sake of my brother's sanctification. And so that's why he begins the way that he does in chapter 9. So let's read it. This is the Word of God. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen uh, Jesus our Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, 
for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have the right to eat and to drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and, and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and, uh, and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. Because the plowman, the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing in the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I, I have used none of these things. And I'm not writing these things so that it will be done, so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? that when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Here in verses 1 through 18, we see that our freedom must never be used selfish, selfishly. We, we must never use our freedom in a self-centered kind of way. There are three main parts to this passage. First, verses 1 and 2 Paul, or, or um, verses 1 through 6, Paul makes a claim on his apostleship. I am an apostle. And, and he's going to make that claim. Second, in verses 7 through 14, he's going to say that he has seven proofs for why he should be paid for his gospel ministry. Seven proofs for why he should be paid for the gospel ministry. And then, third, he's going to state that he gives up this right. He has the right to, the, to be paid, but in the third part, we're going to see that he gave up that right in order to advance the gospel or to avoid any hindrance to the gospel is the way he puts it. Alright, so let's look at that first part. The claim that Paul has as an apostle. Paul had rights as an apostle, verses 1 through 6. Here he begins with his claim that he is an apostle. He says, am I not free? He gives four questions. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Implied answer for all four questions is Yes, 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 and yes. And he goes on to, to, to show that idea in verse 2. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. You know that I am an apostle, right? And the reason that you know that is because, as he's going to say in the second letter to the Corinthians, you are my letter written on stones. Right? If you want to know who, um, who I am, then look at yourselves. The proof that I am an apostle is that you have come to Christ. The gospel has made its way to you. And so Paul's saying, listen, the proof that I am an apostle here in, in 1 Corinthians 9 is that, that they are Christians. They, their lives have been changed. It shows that the gospel is real and his apostleship is true. So Paul's saying, listen, as an apostle, I have certain rights. Look at the first question again in verse 1. Am I not free? Right? Do I not have liberty? Do, do I not have rights? And Paul is going to build on that in verses 3 through 6 where he, he shows his rights as an apostle. He, he has to defend himself. Notice those first two words there in verse 3. My defense. Um, because the Corinthians apparently we're making a claim that he wasn't an apostle. He must not have been an apostle. 
because, you know, apparently from other parts of the text, you know, his weak speaking skills and also the fact that he didn't take money. You know, if you were really good, you would take money for your, for your oratory skills. That's how the secular speakers would do it. They would come into Corinth, which is a place of intellectualism, philosophy, and people would come and speak and they would receive money for their speaking. And Paul's coming in. He's not taking any money for his speaking, so he must not be that good. And so he says, My defense to you is that I have all these rights. Paul claims that he has three rights here in verses uh, verse, in verse, verses 4 and 5. Uh, verses 4 through 6. The first one is, he has the right to eat and drink. Okay, so the implied answer is, yes, you do have the right to eat and drink. And, and the point of it is not, you know, the other option is for me to starve. It is, do I have the right to eat and drink at your expense? Right? I'm doing ministry among you and do, not, do I not have the right to eat and drink at your expense? The word here, um, right, do we not have the right? This word right in, in verses 4, 5, and 6 comes from the same Greek word that's translated in chapter 8, verse 9. Look up there. Chapter 8, verse 9. See if you can see which word it is. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. What is he, what's the word there? Liberty. So it's the same word there. He's saying, take care that this right of yours is not some... What was the right there for them? They had a right to eat meat, sacrifice to idols. You see what he's trying to do here? He's starting to connect. He hasn't made the connection fully, but he's using the same word to help them see. You had the right to eat meat, sacrifice to idols. I have the right to eat and drink at your expense because I'm ministering the Gospel to you. The second right that he mentions here is in verse 5. Does he not have the right to take a believing wife just like the other apostles did? Just like Peter did. Just like the Lord's half-brothers did. Right? James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, according to Matthew chapter 13. They all took wives. And Paul's point is not, do I have the right to get married? You know, or do I have to stay celibate? That's not his point. The point is, because everyone knew that, his point is that, that he could get married and as a minister of the Gospel, he, like they could bring his wife along when he's ministering the Gospel and guess who's going to have to help take care of her? The church. Do I not have the right to eat and drink at your expense? And do I not have the right to actually be married and bring her along and you help pay for her as well? Care for her needs. The third right is uh, a little bit more sarcastic. Verse 6. Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Now, kind of a double negative there. So it's kind of hard to understand. But he's saying, are we the only ones that have to take a second job? All these other apostles and ministers of the Gospel, they can earn their living from the Gospel. That's okay for them. But for Barnabas and I, we have to take a second job. We don't have the right to just have this job. I mean... Don't we have the right to refrain from working? And the implied answer is, of course you do. Paul's making a comparison here. saying, see, I have all these rights. I gave up that right. That's what he's going to get to in verses 15 and following. And you have this right to eat meat, and yet you need to give up this right for the sake of others. Paul has the right to be cared for financially when he is with the church or any church that he's with. And he, has, he shows now in verses 7 through 14 seven proofs that Paul should be paid for his ministry. Seven proofs that Paul should be paid for his ministry. The first three are more from a secular perspective or maybe just um, agricultural, or maybe not agricultural, but, but workplace examples in verse 7. Okay, see if you can see them there. The first one, the example of a soldier. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? So when a person comes to sign up for the military, even in our country, do they have to bring a check that's going to cover their own expenses for the next four years? No. 
Right? How about when they're out on the field? Do they have to have someone send some supplies to them, somebody from home to help provide for them? No. The point is, is that soldiers don't pay for themselves. They are paid to do their work instead. They don't have to get, go out and get a second job while they're training or fighting. The second example, second proof from rational wisdom, or we could say from the workplace, is the vineyard, the vineyard owner. The vineyard owner in verse the middle of verse 7. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? So you got a vineyard owner. owner he, he, um, he, puts, he, he um, puts the seeds in the ground and he cares for the vines. Which vineyard own, owner would sell all of his crops without ever eating some for himself? Right? He, he has the right to that. And in fact, he does share in the fruits of his labor. And then the third one there in, at the end of verse 7 is a shepherd. Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? So is not a shepherd allowed to take some milk from his goats? Maybe, a, maybe an easier one for us to understand. What about a baker? Right? Is there any baker that you know that doesn't taste this frosting? Or... Someone who's making cookies doesn't save as part of the cookie dough, eat for themselves. No, I mean, this is part of what happens is as we work, we enjoy some of the, the fruits of our labor. So there are three examples, soldier, vineyard owner, and shepherd. But there are more and better proofs than these just from the workplace or from, we could say, rational wisdom or as verse 8 calls it, human judgment. That's where I get this idea of rational wisdom. I am not speaking these things according to human judgment or rational wisdom, am I? I'm just, I'm just coming up with secular ideas here. Let me show you some from the Scriptures. That's what he does in verses 8 through 11. First, a, a proof from the Old Testament law. I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about the ox, about oxen, is He? Or is He speaking altogether for our sake? So there's more than just human judgment that proves that I should be paid for my ministry work. The best proofs that Paul should be paid for his work come from the Bible. And so he says, consider the Old Testament law. And what does the Old Testament law do? It actually prohibits a farmer from muzzling his oxen as they're treading out the grain. That is, oxen were, were used to, to tread out the grain, to stamp on the grain and, and to, to remove the grain from the husk with their weight. And, and the, the farmer was not allowed to put a muzzle over his mouth so he couldn't have any of the feed. Instead, they would allow him to take part in, in the fruits of his labor. And so we have a principle that, that we can derive from these first four examples that workers share in the fruit of their labor. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says the point of all that law for the oxen was not that God is so concerned about oxen. Isn't that what he says at the end of verse 9? Now, is God concerned about oxen? Of course He is. That's why He made the law. But there's more to it. There's something deeper than that, isn't there? And that's why he says in verse 10, or is He speaking altogether for not the oxen's sake, but for our sake? See, God put that law in place to, to teach to us a principle about work. That we ought to, when we work, like the plowman when he plows and the thresher when he threshes, he expects at some point to share in the fruits of his labor. That was the point of the principle with the oxen. It was to teach us something about God and, and his concern for humans. Isn't that what workers expect? Look at the second part of verse 10. Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing in the crops. So they expect to get paid in some way. They expect to share in some of those crops that, you know, like if you think about the story, the parable of the vineyard owner in Mark chapter 12, Jesus is using that to show how the Jews rejected him. You know, I sent my prophet, God owned the vineyard, um, the prophets came and said, 
you know, stop mistreating, make sure you pay pay up what's owed to the vineyard owner, and they say no, and they beat some, and they kill others, and finally he sends a son, and he kills the son. Well, part of the, the first part of that kind of shows us the principle of what happens in the vineyard owner. And what it was, basically, is that the vineyard owner would actually lease out the field to a manager who would now have responsibility for the field, but he would actually not just work all the field and give all of the crops to the owner. Instead, he would work the field and keep some of them for himself, not stealing or anyway. That was part of his payment for working. But the vineyard owner still had a an, um, he, he still had a, a hold on his portion since he was the owner. And and the point is, is that when someone does that kind of when they have that arrangement, they're the manager, not the owner. They still expect to have some of that crop at the end for themselves. And that's the nature of work, is that when we work, we expect to receive fruit from our labor. So maybe for you, this would have been enough. You know, we have these examples from the workplace. We have this example from the Old Testament uh, law, but Paul's not done yet. In verse 12, he gives another proof. The fifth proof. And that is a proof from other paid preachers. In verse 12, He says, if others have the right over you, that is to be paid, do we not more? Then he talks about his kind of personal principle, conviction, resolution. We do not use this right, but we endure all things that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel. So he's saying other preachers come along and they share the right to be paid. And and their right to do so. They have a rightful claim on that, they, they should be paid for their ministry in the gospel. But Paul, Paul's not denying that. What he is denying is that he ought to have even more of a right than they. Why? What's so special about Paul in relation to any other preacher that came through Corinth? He was their founding pastor. He was the apostle. I mean, other preachers like Apollos and Peter, you know, this. remember these three groups that started to come up in chapter 1 and chapter 4? I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. I'm of um, Peter. Maybe Apollos and Peter came along and they actually were being paid. It sounds like they were because it says Peter had the right to take a wife and he brought her along and she was taken care of. Why not Paul? The Corinthians probably thought that Paul refused to be paid because he was acknowledging his inferiority. You know, they, they didn't think he was that great of a preacher. And that, you know, other preachers were worthy of their payment. But Paul's response is, that if anyone had earned the right to receive payment for his work, it was he. It sounds like in these first 11 and a half verses that Paul's going to say, here's the application for you. Put some money in a bag and send it to me. That's what it sounds like his application is going to be. You owe me. But instead, he tips his hand to show what his point is. And that is that he will not do what he has the right to do in order to avoid any hindrance in the gospel. Look again at that second part of verse 12. Nevertheless, we, probably Barnabas and he, did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel in Christ. So keep your money. I'm not asking for your money. In fact, he's going to say later, that would be... I'd rather die than receive your money. It's not my point in saying all this. I'm just saying, I have the right, and I'm giving that right right up for the sake of the gospel. And so, his larger point is, and we're going to come back to next time, is if Paul could give up something as significant as his personal finances, right? Something that he had a claim on, for the sake of the gospel, could they not give up a few pieces of meat when they're around some weaker brothers? That's the point. But he's not done yet. Proof number six from the Levitical priests in verse 13. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? I think he's probably talking about Old Testament Levitical priests which are fallen out of practice, obviously, because of the coming of Christ. But what about Old Testament Levitical priests? Did they have the right to eat from the showbread? 
What happened to the showbread after seven days? It had to be replaced. What happened to the old showbread? Yeah, the priests ate it. In fact, no one else was supposed to eat it, although David did the one time. Um, and what about the sacrifices? If a, if a typical worshiper comes with the sacrifice of a goat and the sheep, what happens to that sacrifice? A burnt offering, the whole thing's burnt up. But, but what about on a, on a sin offering or a peace offering? What happens to that animal? A part, part of it goes to the priest. Why? Because they have a right to share in part of their labor, don't they? Again, the point comes out. And if that's not enough, how about a commandment from the Lord? Proof from the Lord's command, the seventh one here, verse 14. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. If these Old Testament examples don't seal it up for you, then how about a commandment from our Lord? And in two places, Jesus commanded his disciples to go out in pairs. First, he did it to the twelve. He said, you, you twelve, go out in pairs. You go into the cities. I want you to spread the gospel. Preach that the kingdom of God is near. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. And when you go, here's what you're supposed to take. What was it? Basically nothing. What about a suitcase, Lord? Full of clothes? An extra coat? Nope. Just what you're wearing. You don't need an extra one. What about uh, a money bag? Nope. No money bag. Well, how are we going to take care of ourselves? How would they? People would care for them, right? Exactly. The disciples were going to do the work of the gospel and when they went into the cities bringing the gospel, they had the right to be cared for by those people. Why? Look at the text. Verse 14. Those who proclaim the gospel get their living from the gospel. And this is a summary or a paraphrase of what Jesus said to them, which is, the worker is worthy of his wages. Jesus did the same thing in Luke 10:7, where he sends out his 70 disciples. Same thing. Don't take anything with you. You don't need anything. They will take care of you. Go casting out demons, doing miracles, preaching the gospel, but don't take anything with you because you are worthy of your wages. And so here's Paul's summary conclusion that comes out in the command of the Lord in verse 14. Those who proclaim the gospel have the right to be paid for their ministry. So we have this long section here at the beginning of chapter 9 where Paul takes three paragraphs, 14 verses to make one point. I am an apostle and I have the right to be paid for my ministry. But, verse 15 through 18, he basically says, I'm going to throw all that in the trash. Because that's not important to me. So, verses 15 and 18, he refuses to be paid for his ministry. After all of his compelling arguments, that he should be paid, he says the opposite of what we'd expect. He says, I have used none of these things with the Corinthians. I had the right to be paid, but I didn't use that right. I set it aside for your sake. Now, it's not that, ne that Paul never got paid for ministering to the churches. Do you remember any gifts that were sent to him? Oh. Philippians, Exactly. Right, he, the, the letter to the Philippians, he's just profoundly thankful for their generous gifts. I mean, how could I have made it without you? In 2 Corinthians 11.8, he, he says that I effectively, in order to, to stay firm on my conviction not to take any money from you, Corinthians, I actually robbed other churches. He doesn't mean he went, took money from them. He, he's, he's making a, a euphemism there for, for he willingly collected or accepted money from other churches so that he wouldn't have to take any from the Corinthians. And he's saying, for you, I never took any money because it was my personal boast, my personal joy to refuse to be paid for the gospel. Look at verse 15. The second part of the verse says, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done. So I'm not trying to tell you to pay me. It would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast, my joy, an empty one. So I find my joy in not being paid for the gospel. Why? Because the gospel can actually, or being paid for the gospel can actually cause someone to stumble. Right, think about a non-Christian who doesn't quite understand uh, how God has established 
the order of the church and how people get how, how ministers get paid for. They might come in thinking that that the pastor's peddling the gospel. Right? He's just going through the motions, playing this game just in order to be paid. Paul's saying, I don't want anybody ever to think that. It's not wrong for another pastor to accept money, but for me, I will not do that, particularly with the Corinthians. And it sounds like the other gifts that came to him, he he simply accepted. He didn't demand them. So he's saying, you know, some of these other ancient prosperity preachers are going around peddling the gospel for money. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be seen to be doing that. Instead, I'm compelled to preach. Verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward, but if against my will, I have a stewardship. So I think what Paul is saying here is that he's not the one who chose this career. He didn't choose to be a minister of the gospel. If he had chosen it, then you know he may reconsider and, and actually take money from all the churches. But God actually chose him to preach. And so in that sense, it was a stewardship that was entrusted to him that he ought to take care of. And so he saw that in verse 18, his personal reward for preaching was actually to be able to preach without being paid. Look at verse 18. What then is my reward? Here it is. That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge. So as not to use my full, notice that word again, my full right in the gospel. Again, he had every right to be paid, maybe even more so than Peter and Apollos. But this last line, Paul was not going to make full use of his right. I wonder if it's starting to click with the Corinthians yet. Paul's point is, if if I can give up my rights as an apostle, can you not give your rights up as a Christian? And the Corinthians had full rights to eat meat, sacrifice the idol. They knew that that was not a sin against the God in itself. Paul's saying, can you not give that up for the spiritual well-being of others? And what about us? I mean, we have full rights and freedoms as Christians. But in some cases, we must give up those rights in order to avoid spiritual harm to our brother. And, like Paul, to more rapidly advance the gospel. So let me um, finish with two principles that I think are clear in the text. One is is uh, not the main point. We'll start with that one. And then the second one is the main point. first one is that every, every pastor has the right to be paid for his ministry. Every pastor has the right to be paid for his ministry. Now, I mean, we may not even need to say this or think about this, but there is a fad. I would call it a fad, that's going on right now to change the leadership of churches to a group of elders. you familiar with this fad that's going on? There are good arguments for and against this model, and I know of some good Christians that disagree with me on this, but, but I believe that the Bible does not require a group of elders to lead the church. In fact, it seems to the pattern is that there is a single pastor, at least who has charge over the whole congregation. There may be other elders who come alongside in, in a supportive role, but but this is more a, a um, kind of a, a group of leaders who are all equal is, is the way that um, it's normally set up. And many conservative churches are moving in that direction. And in order to make this model work, um, you know, churches don't quite, quite frankly don't have enough money to pay for all of these pastors, these elders. Uh, it's, don't think elders is um, some kind of Catholic or Episcopalian type thing. Elders is just another way to say pastors. It's used interchangeably in the scriptures. So, um, um, so they don't have enough money to for to go around for all these pastors. So what do they do? They separate them into two categories. You, you know what they are? Paid and non-paid. That's yeah. But the, but they they call them um, the uh, the paid elders, and then usually they call them the lay elders sounds a little bit better than non-paid, I guess. So the paid elders are the ones who kind of are there at the church all the time. They're handling all the major decisions. The, the non-paid, the lay elders, are ones who come up from the congregation, just like you expect the paid ones to do as well. But, but they have a job where they have to take care of their own finances. And they don't get paid by the church. In fact, the church doesn't even, a lot of the churches don't even offer to pay them 
in any way. The lay elders don't get paid, but they're still required to do the duties of an elder and they're still required to make decisions on behalf of the church just as if they were a full-fledged, full-paid elder. I think this model is unbiblical because of passages like this in 1 Timothy 5 which says that a worker is worthy of his wages and that you should not muzzle an ox while he is still treading. So, now, there's a difference between a a lay elder, let's say a non-paid elder, who determines, like Paul, to refuse to be paid, right? Who decides... I know you've offered to pay me, but I'm not going to receive it. That's different. What, what I'm saying is that there are actually churches who are saying, you are an elder in our church, but we are not going to pay you. And I think that goes against this principle that, that is brought out here by Paul, which again is not his, his main point, but I think it's, it's a legitimate point. First Timothy 5 says the same sort of thing. And so... Um, a lot of these churches, I think, are are um, trying to set up a better model, um, but in, in the in the process, but I think they're disobeying some clear principles in Scripture. So I think every pastor has the right to be paid for his ministry. So how does that apply to us? I mean, I'm I'm paid to be here, so I praise God for that. Thank thankful for your uh, generosity to myself. Um, but but I think it applies to us in that there will likely come a time when we are in a position where we need another person to help us out here. Um, And I think we would do well to follow this principle to, you know, obviously we may not be able to pay them full-time, but they may not be able to work full-time. So, But we should pay them proportionate to the amount of work that they do. And um, so we'll cross that bridge when we get there, but I think it's good to just keep this in mind pastors have the right to be paid for the ministry. I think this comes up a lot more, by the way, in in a missionary context, and maybe as we're talking to missionaries and encouraging them, uh, especially a lot of these national uh, pastors who come to Saving Faith, they, they grow up in the church, they become a pastor at some point, and the church is just kind of dragging their feet on paying them. And, and we need to encourage the churches there and the missionaries to encourage the churches to, to pay their pastor. I think that's a biblical obligation. There's the main point. My freedom must, must never be used selfishly. I think this is a the theme of the text. I think this is the main principle application. You know, I was trying to think of some more examples this week of, of how we have personal freedoms. And, and we, we were kind of thinking of some within the church and as a Christian. But what about as a U.S. citizen? You know, what kind of rights do we have as, as a US, U.S. citizen that we ought to be willing to set aside for the sake of other people? Can you think of any? How about the right of free speech? Because I have the right to, of free speech, should I say everything that's on my mind? I mean, should I say everything I have the right to say? Or what about this one? I have the right, according to a Supreme Court ruling, to burn an American flag. Right? Should I... Just because I have the right, do I have to use it? No, in fact, it would actually do damage to my fellow citizens. Because there are people who... Um, there are men and women who, who fought and died for the sake of of myself for me to be able to get that right and I'm effectively spitting on their grave when I burn a flag right and and so just because I have a right doesn't mean I have to use it and as a Christian I have a right to do a lot of things and you have a right to do a lot of things because you are free in Christ God has made all things richly to enjoy and, and within the bounds of his laws we have rights to do so many things but we must never use them carelessly. We always need we always need to have the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters in Christ in view. Like how is this how is the using of this right? I know it's not a sin against my conscience. I know it's not a sin against God, but how could this affect my brother? It goes back to the beginning of chapter 8. 
that, that you know, my knowledge about my rights and what I can do can actually puff me up, can it? And that's why I need to submit my knowledge to what it says there in, at the end of verse 1 in chapter 8. You know, love edifies. It's not, it's not all about knowing what the, my right is, what my privilege or my freedom is to do, but rather, how does this submit itself to love? How does this actually end in love? Because love is what edifies and builds up. And if, if I'm only concerned about my own self-interests, then I'm going to do damage to my fellow Christians and hinder the gospel from being received by non-Christians. And so this is not an easy thing to think through, but I think, uh, I think it's, we would do well over the next several weeks just continue to think of what kind of things we can give up so that the gospel will not be hindered. My brother sins. My brother is hindered from advancing his spiritual growth. Or, you know, a non-Christian sees things the wrong way. Even though I had a right to do something, I, I'm willing to set that aside so a non-Christian doesn't see it the wrong way. And what actually helps to advance the gospel? What kind of ways can I give up my personal rights in order to make sure that the gospel is just flourishing? And those are some good questions to be thinking through over the next several weeks that we're in this um, uh, these two chapters. Any questions or comments? Think of any more examples this week of some rights that we have that we may need to think about and, and um, you know, again, I think there is a distinction we need to make between offending someone and actually causing them to sin. Okay, so people get offended, especially in our culture, and even in our Christian subculture, people get offended over really crazy things. Okay, so we don't we don't have to give up everything that we do just because someone has, um, you know, really particular uh, convictions. But if it actually leads them to sin, that's the point of the eating meat sacrifice to idols. They see you as a stronger Christian saying, wait a second, he's doing that, then I guess I can do it. And even though his conscience is saying, no, 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 he goes on and does it. And he sins against his conscience. He sins against his Lord. He causes you to sin against your Lord because you've sinned against him and creating a stumbling block, right? So, can you think of any other examples or should we hold off for another week? Bob. Yes. And the amount or the ability to number one, number two, number three. You going with girls to do? Okay. Yeah, could it cause them to sin? That's the question that we need to be thinking about. And if it can, then yeah, we need to be willing to give those things up for the sake of them. Um, for the alcohol one, uh, we don't have any clear prohibitions in the scriptures against it, but that doesn't mean we have a clear allowance for it either. Um, but we do have one in our church uh, covenant. So when we signed up to be a member of this church, we said that we would not partake in any way of alcohol um, distribution, drinking of it. So, so actually we've sinned against the commitment that we've made to the church in that sense. And actually we did that, especially in the presence of a weaker Christian who's thinking, you know, I, I know I can't do it because it would lead me to be drunk. And they see, maybe that is a good example, you know, um, even if we didn't have that in our church covenant. But but to me, that's a clear sin against what we've committed not to do. Uh, tobacco, you know, obviously we have to speak on that one principally, 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 uh, because, again, you're not going to find this thou shalt not, you know, smoke. Um, so, you know, we, we've developed those kinds of I think in many ways, legalistic uh, laws in our Christian subculture and saying anyone who does that is not Christian and if they are, they're definitely not a um, 
they're definitely not a, um, a, a mature Christian. And, you know, but, but if, we, if we're going to cause someone to stumble, we're going to cause them to sin, or we're going to hinder their spiritual growth, then we ought to be willing to give those up. As far as secular music, again, I think it's the same thing. I mean, you've you got to argue from what, what is, how secular is secular? Which part of it, when does it become worldly? You know, is, is classical music okay, but, you know, soft rock or, I, I don't know, country music, is that bad, you know? Where, where are we going to draw the lines? And that's what churches have just, you know, they classical yes, anything else no, type thing. And it's like, well, where do we get those principles? And but if it if someone who's you know coming out of that kind of lifestyle is going to sin because of that, then yes, we need to give those things up. Um, I think it's a little bit more complex than that, in that we and I don't want to. I don't want to open up a can of worms, so I'll just leave it at that for right now. And then hopefully in chapter 10 we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more deeply. But Yeah, I think it's good for us at this point in our church's history, in Christian history, to start rethinking why do we have the, why do we have the prohibitions that we do against some of these things. I mean, and obviously you have this other group of these progressive kinds in the Christian subculture that are just going so far well that's my right I'm I'm gonna you know have a beer wherever I go or whatever and and they think in that case you've got to be careful you know it's like I, I have my right I know my right no one can stop me from doing my right type thing and that to me is is very dangerous type of mindset um Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, and it you know theologically, if you go back to you know we've talked before, like the Proverbs passage that says you know the guy is looking in the cup and his eyes are getting red, and it, it just becomes your life and it becomes your master, and whatever masters you is, or whatever you're enslaved to, that is your master. So you can't get into that position. We know that. So that could happen with both tobacco and alcohol. Could happen with secular music too, I suppose, but. Um, so, but but we also need to be careful about making convictions for ourselves and forcing them on others when we don't have biblical support, when we don't have biblical, you know, support. Bill, do you have a follow-up? Yeah, and my dad uh, came out of some of that as well, and and he uh, he stayed as far away as he could once he got saved because, and, but he still had the cravings for it. I mean, he he said that, but but he knew how much damage that it could cause to himself and his inhibitions and what kind of person it made him. So he had a personal conviction just to stay away from it and obviously keep us away from it as much as possible. Yeah, I mean, uh, we're we're talking about uh, offenses primarily. So, um, that there are, I, I've heard some good presentations from a Christian perspective on why we shouldn't drink at all, um, and so uh, those can be convincing. But but what we're talking about is, let's say that we've determined in our minds that it is okay, and that that we have the right to do it. The question is, should we? And so, what I want to do is when we get to chapter ten. Um, I want to 
go through some questions that have helped me. And uh, some of this has been developed from John MacArthur's work on a similar topic. And then also Brian Trainer from our seminary uh, just recently, I was telling you last time, speaking on this. And he got some helpful questions. So no matter what type of issue comes up about a debatable issue, here's some questions that we can ask. And, uh, you know, eight or ten questions. Let's work through these. You know, is it, is it going to be something that enslaves me? Is it something that's going to cause my brother to sin? Is it going to actually edify me or someone else in doing so? You know, a lot of the things that we do, we, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't meet these qualifications, which I think are biblical principles. And it, it's a good way for us to think. You know, if God wanted to, he could have just laid out everything he wanted us to do, every single item, and we never would have to think about it. And I've mentioned this lots of times before, but just turn us into robots and we just like, oh, go to the, the Google Bible and find out what God wants to do. Oh, he doesn't want us to do that. Okay. And we don't even think about it. But what God wants is a relationship, just like your spouse. You know, she could give you a list of every single thing she desires from you and everything she wants done around the house. But you know what's better is actually developing a relationship with your spouse and getting to know her, talk with her find out what she likes and dislikes and, and figure out some of these things on your own. Um, so I think God does something similar to us, not to to demean our relationship with Him in any way, but but um, but He teaches us to, to have more relationship rather than just a list of do's and don'ts. don'ts. All right, we'll keep thinking through this, and um, and obviously our goal is to stick to the text as much as we can. Some of these issues we may not be able to answer fully on this side of the cross, but or this this side of of our grave. But but um, but I think I think we ought to try, you know, try to think through some of these things and see what God God's mind would be on this. The best way we can know His mind is by looking at His Word.